0: There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you.
1: Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombus, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombus. Welcome to Jules Says. I'm Julie, Jules, grandmother, mom. I have a special guest joining me today, Natasha Silverman, also known as Tasha the Love Therapist. Natasha originally studied law. She earned a first class honors law degree before she began training in counseling. Why counseling after a law degree? Well, While running legal pro bono programs, which Natasha established, she realized that her passion was working with people at their most emotionally vulnerable. And I think anyone who's had to deal with family law or the justice system at all certainly understands a certain degree of vulnerability when you're in those positions. Not only that, through Natasha's experience of chronic health and pain conditions, she developed an interest in the psychology of relationships and the impact of strong connections on emotional resilience, and of course health, which led to additional training, certifications, and relationship counseling. These days, Natasha specializes in relationship and sex therapy— She's trained to deliver science-based relationship training programs to frontline staff through government-funded parental conflict reduction programs. Parental conflict reduction, that's important, especially if the parents aren't together. Her expertise has been featured in Harper's Bazaar, Women & Home, Metro UK, The Telegraph, among other publications. She's a speaker, writer, trainer, co-parenting practitioner, women's coach. I follow her on Instagram, at Tasha the Love Therapist, and maybe you should too. With so much going on in her life, I am thrilled that Tasha was willing and able to make time to be a special guest on the Jules Says podcast. I had originally asked her to talk about jealousy, but after some consideration, I thought it might be better to ask Tasha to talk about what her followers and clients most often ask about. And surprise, surprise, loss of sexual desire or desire discrepancy in relationships is top of many people's concerns. I really enjoyed chatting with Tasha, and I hope you'll enjoy hearing our chat. Tasha Silverman, welcome to Jewel Says.
2: Thank you for having me, Julie. It's a pleasure to be here.
1: It is my honour and my privilege, so I'm thrilled. Uh, Loss of sexual desire and desire discrepancy is definitely important to a lot of people. How do you even attack that question? If Let's say a couple comes to you with an issue or an individual, how do you even start?
2: Well, I think it's really important to ascertain, first of all, what is meant by low desire or a loss of desire, because that means such different things to different people. Mm -hmm. Quite often, you know, a couple or an individual will come to therapy and say something's going on, you know, our, our sex life is deteriorating, we're not having sex frequently. And then pretty quickly it emerges that there's some other issue that has not been addressed. So the classic communication problems, relationship problems, difficulties managing conflict uh, that's a real big cause of um, sexual problems and that's not surprising really because it's it, you're not abnormal if you don't always want to have sex with the person who's rolling their eyes at you or who's <sighs> utterly engrossed in their iphone and hasn't you know paid you the time of day for the last uh, couple of weeks so that's that's a really uh, common cause but Then there are other issues, erectile difficulties, premature ejaculation. There are all these different things. Pain during sex may be uncovered as you start to talk about why, why, what might be in the way of this fulfilling sex life that maybe uh, a couple once had.
1: Well, I think too, there are some old time stereotypical tropes out there as well. I was a teenager in the 70s. And I Mm -hmm. certainly know back in the day, that we just assumed men were always horny and up for it. And that it was our job, women and girls to be the gatekeepers and shut that down. And we also had to navigate being careful about not being in situations. So then you're in a committed relationship. And I think from a woman's perspective, you might be looking at your husband or your partner and thinking, why aren't you after me all the time? Mm -hmm. Or your husband from that era might be looking at you and thinking, well, I don't want to be the initiator all the time, but then maybe the woman feels uncomfortable. I think those attitudes are changing, though, don't you?
2: I think you're absolutely right that those stereotypes about gender in the context of sexual relationships influence how how confident we are, how um, how engaged we can be with our partner sexually. There are so many expectations when it comes to what a man's role is and what a woman's role is, you know, in, in heterosexual relationships. Yeah. And one of the things that comes out pretty quickly uh, in sex therapy is this sense of duty and expectation that so many women have. And there is nothing uh, as unsexy as you know having to have sex or feeling that you should be having sex
1: it's part of your job yeah just like doing the dishes and the laundry and vacuuming
2: (laughs) yeah exactly and then yeah that there's a pattern of what does that then mean it means that there are a lot of women who are having sex when they don't necessarily want to be but because they're ticking it off a, a list of you know a list of household chores
1: And then I think sometimes their partners are wondering why they're not more enthusiastic. Like, why are you not reclining on a chaise lounge with a boa at the end of the day? It's like, also, when you've got a lot of responsibilities and you're juggling multiple priorities, you're tired.
2: Mm, Yeah, absolutely. I do think there are some fundamental misconceptions about how sexual desire works generally. And we know that there's this idealized idea that spontaneous desire is the, the gold standard. You know, that is when we're talking about libido, it's on or it's off or it's high or it's low. And that's because we have this idea that if you're attracted to your partner, when they initiate, boom, everyone's in the mood and it's on. And that's just not how it works. And no. we know that 75% of men do have that. of men do have that spontaneous desire, you know, They it would be just be a thought and they are, you know, ready to go and ready to pursue. Um, But very few women have that.
1: You know, I've had a saying for years that the way to a woman's libido is through her heart and the way to a man's heart is through his libido. I mean, I think for a lot, and obviously not all women are like that. I had a friend years ago whose marriage was falling apart and she mentioned, and I forget how or why, she said, Well, physically nothing's changed. And I thought, wow, that's mm-hmm. unusual. Because I think for most of us, if our relationship isn't working, again, back to your point about the eye rolling or the mm-hmm. berating and the criticizing, you're not in the mood. No. You're just not in the mood. And I think because of the stereotypical tropes, at least for older women, I think a lot of us just assume that we aren't interested in sex anymore. That's just who we've become. And then you meet someone and it's all of a sudden, oh, I actually could have been interested. A big revelation.
2: Yeah, definitely. I think that's something that a lot of people experience. And, and also, you know, for the, the first six months to two years of a relationship is when most women also have spontaneous desire. This kind of, they they are, they're on, it's all exciting, it's new. You're dating your partner. They're mm-hmm. interested in who you are as a person. You know, there's a lot more dating and flirting and anticipation building. And somewhat unsurprisingly, I, I, I don't think the timing is that shocking really? Because six months to two years, that's generally when you start to see your partner as becoming a piece of the furniture. Maybe you move in together mm-hmm. or with, with them in your pajamas a lot of the time, rather than excitedly getting ready for dates and being, yeah. you know, so it does, it does make a lot of sense. Yeah. And then once you're courted in some way, or you're having an interaction with someone who sees you, it's easy to then think, you know, oh, hello. Yeah, I'm
1: alive. Yeah. Yeah. I also had a friend. I know I'm talking a lot about older women, but that's my perspective. And I want to go back to the differences, of course. But I had a friend who warned me she's about 10 years older than I am. She was single for most of her life. She never had an orgasm the whole time she was married. After she left her husband, she would go out and hook up, which in our day, there was no Tinder or anything. So it was kind of unusual. And I used to really love almost living vicariously through all of her stories. She did end up marrying someone. But one of the things she warned me about was her desire really plummeted with the onset of menopause. Mm-hmm. And and she said she wanted to talk about it because people don't talk about it. And this was a few mm-hmm. years ago. So that was good information. And I think people are talking about it now. But then another male friend of mine said, oh, no, I found the opposite. Menopausal women are more up for it. And I'm like, okay, but you're hooking up on Tinder. I don't know if that's because it's exciting because it's new. A lot of times women will say they like something or are interested in something just to please this new guy. Or maybe there's also a component of you can't get pregnant anymore. So, yeah, that's liberating. Do you find that there's a biological correlation with menopause or is that just sort of an anecdotal thing for all kinds of other reasons?
2: Well, we know that hormonal changes generally have a huge um, influence on sexual desire. And and yes, menopause is a, a significant time where hormones change and that will affect sexual desire and some people do see an increase and some people see a decrease but it's quite similar in other stages of life as well you know pregnancy sex drive can go through the roof during pregnancy Mm -hmm. Um, lots of women find that you know maybe they are not so interested and then they're in their ovulation window and you know all of a sudden it's game on Um, So really, hormones have a huge role to play. And it's not remotely surprising that women who are perimenopausal or uh, menopausal will experience changes in that way. And I do think that doctors are, you know, slowly paying more attention to this. And are more aware of how to manage this as well, you know, in terms of uh, hormones. And uh, and I'd encourage people to, you know, speak to their doctor if they are seeing a big change. Because while there are lots of relational and contextual reasons, there are also medical considerations that can be managed and can be uh, improved.
1: It must be very challenging for you because there are so many potential contextual reasons for diminishing desire or a discrepancy. How do you even begin to explore that with people? And do you ever find, like, just tell me about that.
2: I think the first thing that tends to happen is to explore people's beliefs about sex and sexuality and what it should look like. Because you very quickly uncover so many myths that have been internalised. And actually, when you start liberating people and freeing them from these ideas that they've held for such a long time, um, things start to fall into place and they start to realise that maybe uh, my sex life or my sexual desire shouldn't look the way I've been told it should. Um, So something that I see quite frequently is people describing this huge drop off in their sex drive we were dating it was passionate you know we were swinging from the chandeliers it was great and then you know it all just uh, as we as we transitioned into a longer term relationship it's all fizzled out and people will then start to refer to having um or one partner generally um will say that they have lost their sex drive Mm-hmm. that they have now got a low libido, that they don't know what's happened. It's gone. It's changed. Um, how do I fix this? They're, a, they're a, a problem to be solved. They're in some way broken. And what people fail to realise, and what the science is telling us very clearly as well, is that they are normal. This is what happens, particularly for women. It does change after that initial stage of dating, six months to two years, Yeah, it becomes responsive. And then you need to start having different conversations with your partner about what what does it for you. Responsive uh, sexual desire really uh, requires some sort of stimulation, emotional, physical, sexual, to actually get you to that place rather than fancy a quickie. uh, Oh, yeah, sure. You know, that that stops um, for a lot of people. Pretty soon um, into a uh, long, long-term relationship. Do you
1: find a lot of individuals come and then and they have a partner who's maybe stonewalling them on on it? How does that work?
2: Uh, yeah, I think that happens actually quite a lot with couple counselling generally, regardless of whether it's connected to a sexual issue. I think it's quite common that one partner is a little bit obstructive or is not really in the place where they can engage with counselling, maybe they feel um, a lot of shame, maybe having to go to therapy uh, represents something to them, you know, they're failing in some way. But I think it's not uncommon for people to stonewall when they are feeling really stuck, and they do not know how to engage or fix a problem. That doesn't mean it's a healthy response. And that doesn't mean there's not better ways of having these conversations, but it is understandable to some degree. And I think if if people are experiencing that, it needs to be, it needs to be called out.
1: Yeah, it does need to be called out. And I, I think a lot of us just grow up in a home where a certain behavior, certain behaviors are modeled ways of disagreeing are modeled. You know, some people, I think a lot of people think screaming and yelling and name calling is normal. And yeah. I think those people need to be with each other <laughs> because <laughs> I certainly can't handle that. That is not how I interact with anyone. So.
2: Yeah. and those... you know, It's ironic because people who actually argue that way, generally don't choose other people that argue that way and that's that's the this this beautiful irony in it you choose the person quite often who is equipped uh with the the strategies that will absolutely irritate you and push you to the edge of destruction so you know if you are somebody who shouts and screams and swears odds are you've picked someone who argues in the way that you wish you could and. Yeah then you'll never quite get enough out of them because they won't engage. It's it's really interesting.
1: I thought maybe they picked those people so that they could dominate them more easily.
2: Oh, there's definitely a subset of people that do that. And I think that's far more uh, prevalent in controlling partners and abusive relationships.
1: Yeah. Definitely. But I think all of these things, I mean, your sex drive is not a thing about you that stands on its own. It's mm-hmm. so intertwined with so many other nuances of your relationship, how you feel about yourself. One of the issues, certainly for me, I've always had body image issues. Mm -hmm. And that is a huge issue when it comes to intimate relationship, because if I feel like I look grotesque, I'm Mm -hmm. not going to be feeling particularly sexy And I'm really glad that we have body positivity movements to try and shed that. Anyway, we did.
2: Sorry, go ahead. I was going to say that's a a, a real break on sexual desire. And there are, we do have breaks and accelerators and they, they work at the same time. And some people have stronger breaks and some people have more sensitive accelerators and body image issues and and low self-esteem will be a huge break on sexual desire and it makes that makes a ton of sense that that would influence um, your ability to let go and to um, get into that headspace.
1: It sounds like the sex drive is more a symptom of an underlying problem or problems. Yeah, I think so.
0: For full important safety information, visit Juvederm.com.
1: I went on about older people. Do you see a lot of younger people? I mean, I'm in my 60s, so when I say younger, that can mean quite a wide range. Mm. Do you see a lot of younger people and are their issues much different? I see
2: people of all ages um, and it's quite interesting that there are similar threads that run through every case involving clients, you know, from all backgrounds, all ages, all generations. And quite often it comes back to what you talked about earlier, which is this belief that men need more sex, and it's her job to fulfil that role. And I think that's something that so, you know, we battle with so much in sex therapy. Because unpicking that is very difficult because it's been instilled in us from such a young age. You know, it's I, I don't know how you, you learned about sex and what your sex education was like, but I know that mine was very much around reproduction, Yeah, how not to get pregnant, how not to get infections, and uh, absolutely no reference to pleasure, particularly for women. You know, that, that did not exist. And so that's where it starts. If that's not even a part of your education around sex, you know, it, it plants a seed for a really difficult relationship um, with sex sometimes. That's not
1: part of most of our education around sex. Yeah. Adults are very uncomfortable talking about it with children and it is a perfectly natural part of human life. So as a society, we yeah. I mean, we're so hung up.
2: We are. We are. And it's difficult, particularly now, because it's not just what we say to children about sex that matters. It's what we don't say. And in the absence of any real shame-free, healthy um, sex education, that silence is filled in other ways. Notably, you know, by now, by porn. Oh, yes. And so what we have is a lot of young people who have not received a sex education about what sex looks like in healthy relationships, um, learning from porn. And because we know that boys tend to access porn slightly younger than girls, that then means that girls are learning from boys who obtained their sex education from porn. And that is where we get into, you know, it, it gets tricky. Yeah, that
1: would be tricky. How do you go about unpacking that and how can you tell that that's an influence do people just come out and admit that
2: well it's a question that sex therapists will routinely ask people because it is it is such a huge influence on how people see sex and um it's connected to a a lot of um other areas in sex therapy but you know it's it's really important to work through the myths that people have learned um, from watching porn now i'm not I'm not saying that porn is always a bad thing by any means, you know, but if that's the only sex education you're getting, you're not learning that this is fantasy. This is not real life. This is fantasy. And so, helping even, you know, older guys who have watched a lot of porn realize that what they've learned is not accurate when it comes to female sexuality and quite often male sexuality too Mm -hmm. is paramount. So, I'm thinking about how in porn she's always ready for sex, right? Yeah, yeah. (laughs) I mean, I don't know how that's possible, but whenever he's in the mood, she's ready, both emotionally and she's physically aroused and ready to go. And we know that's not right in terms of um, how long it takes for women to become aroused and ready for penetrative sex, um, and also emotionally. You know, you're not always hungry or thirsty or in the mood for a hike at the same time as your partner. So why would your sex drives always align? Why would you always want sex at the same time as your partner?
1: But if it's your job, then it doesn't matter if you want it.
2: Exactly. And then that's a problem
1: too. And then sometimes the person feels rejected and then they get angry and they'll sometimes express anger that you're not always ready and that's not exactly going to stoke the libido no no
2: not. and it becomes a real tumbleweed of feelings for everybody because i mean in that frustration and anger from the partner who feels rejected what they're not saying i mean you ask any anyone how they feel in that situation and generally the answer is frustrated that's the one feeling you will guarantee you you'll, you'll get guaranteed and once you actually dig a bit deeper it's not good enough shut down Uh, rejected hurt what's happened you know there's so much stuff around self-esteem that isn't articulated because it comes out as frustration and similarly the partner who is who who wants less sex or is not ready for sex quickly enough they're feeling incredibly pressured sometimes coerced and there are also sometimes questions about consent in those situations
1: yeah definitely and i think sometimes uh, when we feel something we have a hard time even articulating the depths of what that is to ourselves yeah i know when i have a feeling that i'm that i don't like i'll try to analyze it and think why am i feeling this way and what about but i don't know that everyone does that
2: Mm, Yeah, we call that mentalizing. That's that's the word for it. The ability to mentalize when you're under pressure and stay within that window of tolerance, staying online when you're under pressure is a a huge achievement. And a lot of people can't do it. Um, And that's when, you know, either you shoot up out of that window and it gets loud and they're shouting, door slamming, or you shoot down out of that window and you completely shut off and you can't engage and you can't speak and you leave and you stonewall. So either way you're offline, but people tend to think that as long as they're being quiet, then they're being reasonable. But either way, um, the communication is not healthy, but that ability to think and inspect your own thoughts and feelings, what was happening to me then? Why did I react like that? Yeah. yeah. That's what makes for, um, you know, real emotional intelligence and and really connected conversations. Is that something you try to help clients learn for themselves? Yeah. Yeah. That's a big part of the work, you know, generally, uh, particularly when it comes to managing communication and conflicts. Quite often we go offline and we don't even know why. You know, that's right. Why did that send me, you know, uh, through the roof? What, what, what was going on for me there? And actually helping clients to recognize when they are leaving that window of tolerance, when they are going offline and what they can do instead.
1: I think there's value, too, in even if you do go off that line, in thinking about it and then saying to the other person, I'm sorry that happened. Mm-hmm this is what I was thinking, this is how I felt at the time, and I'm sorry I reacted that way. I know if someone does that all the time, it starts to feel like an empty apology. But I think if there's a sincere...
2: Mm, The repair. The repair is just as important as the argument itself. You know, how you go back and say, listen, I've been reflecting on that conversation we had and we both know it did not go well. You want to talk about it? You know, I'm really sorry if I raised my voice. I'm sorry if can I tell you about how I experienced that and, and why I felt so upset and reacted the way I did? You know, those kind of conversations where you you're repairing together mm-hmm. and you leave thinking, well, we, we may have had an argument, but we've left it in a much better place and we're equipped for next time. You know, we've got some, we've had some tough conversations, we're ready if this happens again. And then also
1: listening to how that other person felt in that moment. Hopefully both parties reflect and actually give those things some thought. It's very difficult when only one of you is willing to do that.
2: Um, yeah. And that's that's quite a common scenario, actually. Um, we call that a pursuer-distancer cycle, although there are lots of names for it, depending on the, the school of theory. But The idea that one person is more willing to engage and talk about difficult things. They want to come up with resolutions and strategies. They want to feel understood and known. uh, And the other person is maybe a little less comfortable with that. Maybe they pull away. They shut down. I don't want to have this conversation. This is too much. And it's infuriating uh, a cycle because the more one person pursues the more the other tends to distance so you're kind of pushing the other to that place but ultimately it's not it's not sustainable and both parties need coping strategies for that you need to have a situation where one person can feel heard and the other person maybe has a tie, you know has a break first there are some boundaries around the conversation so they feel able to do that But the pursuer distance a cycle, you know, that one person wants to talk or resolve things and the other one doesn't. That's actually one of the most common reasons that couples divorce or separate.
1: I can imagine. And of course, if the relationship isn't healthy, the sex isn't going to be great. One of the things about learning from porn that Mm -hmm. I think of too is an expectation of what you should like. I mean, I think a lot of the porn, and I haven't seen a lot of porn, I've seen some, Mm -hmm. a lot of it to me is just rushed and harsh and nasty. And I think, my goodness, if people, if young people are learning about sex from that, and sometimes you you might get a response from someone saying, well, you're supposed to like that. Well, what do you want me to
2: do? Pretend that I like it? Because that's not helping. Yeah, exactly. I think that's one of the big problems that we find ourselves in with porn, actually, particularly in younger people who don't have anything to compare it to. You know, this is all they know. They haven't had previous relationships where they had different kinds of sex, but they're replicating what they see in pornography. It's it's, it's really difficult. And that's part of the reason. The sex therapy, the first thing you do is put everyone on a sex ban. No sex, no masturbation, no porn, no nothing. (laughs) Oh. Um, Yeah, as you can imagine, that does sometimes go down like a uh, ton of bricks. But it's helpful because you slowly reintroduce intimacy and you start to explore non-genital, non-sexual areas in a different way. So you're incorporating the whole body and the whole person in a way that you probably wouldn't if you had been watching a lot of porn and were uh, very committed to one style of sex. Mm -hmm. Uh, So it's a, it's a great way of rebuilding your sex life and your understanding of sex, but getting young people to do that independently is actually quite difficult. I mean, how, how are people going to do that without help? They're just going to repeat that cycle. Any
1: ideas on how the average person can, let's say you're raising children and we're all uncomfortable talking about sex with our children. Mm -hmm. How do you manage some of these hang-ups, myths?
2: I think, firstly, challenging some of your own thoughts and feelings around sex is probably going to be helpful to allow you to have those conversations with your children, um, actually identifying what makes you uncomfortable. When I say you, I mean one. (laughs) but you know, actually realising, okay, this subject is particularly tough for me. So how am I going to manage this one? And realising that if you don't have this conversation, porn will have it for them. Their friends will have it for them. You know, they will get that information from somewhere. And actually acknowledging the fact that sex happens for reasons other than baby making, you know, (laughs) I mean, how often does a sex education lesson happen at school? Uh, where it's really there's discussion of any, any other motivation. There are other motivating factors, closeness, a fulfilling relationship, building trust, pleasure, Um, I mean, there's absolutely no discussion of the clitoris in most sex education lessons because it's not needed for reproduction. (laughs) And and then what happens is you have people coming to sex therapy and sometimes even doctors making referrals to sex therapists because their female patients report not being able to orgasm through uh, penetrative sex. Mm -hmm. And you have to explain to the to a doctor sometimes that no that's that's not unusual seventy five percent of women cannot orgasm through penetrative sex but you know in the absence of any discussion about how pleasure works for women again it will be you know it will be hand hand me down information it will be not particularly helpful conversations with older friends learning from older or more experienced partners it's it's a tricky one
1: and there are people who think there's something wrong with them if they can't orgasm through penetrative sex.
2: Lots of people do. And and, all... and their partners
1: also think there's something wrong with them.
2: Yeah, and and I meet so many people who have spent so long searching for the elusive G-spot. And it's, you know, you have to break it to them that actually the G-spot is a cluster of clitoral nerves. And in some women, it's accessible via penetration and, and in others it isn't. But, you know, you're not abnormal. In fact, you're in the majority of women if you can't orgasm that way. And that can be quite a shock. I think that
1: can be quite comforting, too, because now you're not blaming yourself and feeling like there's something wrong with you. And then I would think that leads the way for you to pursue the path of figuring out how to have pleasure. I think it's important. I don't know about the British curriculum, but certainly there was a huge brouhaha. We had a sex ed curriculum that was expanded to include recognition of non-binary gender identity and people who may be LGBTQ And I don't know that it actually got into pleasure. Certainly consent was one of the things included in the curriculum. But people freaked out. There are people, and I actually spoke to someone quite young, who think that you cannot. Why would you? You're encouraging young children to question their identity. Why are you sexualizing young children? Our society you have a baby and and people will refer to her as a little heartbreaker or these things are not, they might seem subtle. They're not that subtle. We grow up with these messages and children, I think, are a lot smarter than we give them credit for and mm-hmm. they're a lot more intuitive than we necessarily realize. If your mom or dad are uncomfortable talking about a subject, they internalize that even though you think you're protecting them. And the worst place your child can learn about sex is from a sexual predator.
2: Exactly.
1: So I just feel like information is power and it's healthy to just talk about it. Even though I didn't necessarily talk about it well, what else would you like to share?
2: Oh, what else would I like to share? That's a good question. I don't Uh, want
1: you to just feel like you have to answer my questions. I want you to...
2: it's it's great you've got great questions I think we're having a a lovely conversation but I think you're you're onto something about how we're so we're so reluctant to change the way we've done things aren't we and I think there's sex is always so shrouded in secrecy and privacy and that is obviously understandable but it gets to a point where if it is that secret and that private then we're going to get into trouble, aren't we? Because no one feels able to talk about it openly. And that's why so many people are left carrying trauma for such a long time that hasn't been discussed. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think, I think you're absolutely right. Um, and I also think that one of the main things that I hear every time I have a session with somebody is: Am I normal? Everyone asks the same question. Is this normal? Am I normal? And the answer is always yes. Uh, And I think it's a lot of the the narratives that we have in society around sex make so many people feel broken. Mm -hmm. If you're not always willing, always in the mood when your partner is, something is wrong. If your sex drive changes in some way, something is wrong. And actually what we're lacking most of the time is conversation and communication about what does it for us because yeah at the beginning of a relationship it's all running on spark and anticipation yeah. newness and then what happens when you're actually living with this person forever you need to you know these conversations don't tend to happen because we see sex as being it's very formulaic as well I think the way we see it you know kissing foreplay intercourse if you know for for heterosexual couples especially and actually when does foreplay start probably at the breakfast table i was just gonna say that (laughs) are you
1: how you're treating the person throughout the day all that little stuff
2: yeah exactly and that gets forgotten you know, it gets completely forgotten. You know, what, what, why don't you want to have sex anymore? You know, well, why don't you talk to me the same way as we when we were dating anymore? So there are lots of things that couples can do to build their intimacy and to support difficult conversations. And I just wish
1: we all had access to therapy. Mm. It's sometimes easier said than done, not just for sex education and couple therapy, but all of it. I do believe that funding for these services is woefully less than it should be. And people can't necessarily afford it on their own. And it's so important to your mental health and well-being and satisfaction in your relationships.
2: Absolutely. And it's it's interesting. I mean, I, I don't know whether you have a similar situation in Canada, but here, you know, even if you are In complete despair with your mental health even if you are really really struggling trying to get any help with your mental health is um, virtually impossible you know waiting lists are so long um, the help available is so limited and I think that you know it's just a travesty really that, that that help doesn't exist when it comes to relationships either because we know that relationships go to the root of mental and physical health they are intrinsically linked a good relationship you know i think you're um you take twice as long to get better from illness if there are problems in your relationship you're two and a half times more likely to suffer with anxiety or mood disorders if there are problems in your relationship you're more likely to have a difficult birth experience if you're in a difficult relationship or you're struggling and it really does make you wonder why more help isn't available Lots of people see a good relationship as an indulgence. You know, it's just a, a perk if you don't hate your partner. You know, yeah. Um, if they're not all four, you get on most of the time, then lucky you. But actually, it's crucial to h- how well you are physically and mentally.
1: Yes. And we all seem most of us seem highly motivated to partner up.
0: Mm.
1: I mean, if we didn't have that motivation. We'd have a lot more hookup culture and people wouldn't end up settling down with one person. What do you think of hookup culture, by the way?
2: Uh, I'm not sure, really. I mean, I think it depends on why someone's engaging in hookup culture. I think it works for a lot of people who are not um, on the market for a relationship, but who want to have some um, sexual, physical intimacy. But I also think that sometimes it's a term that is used to describe relationships or sorry, uh, dynamics where one person probably does want more than a hookup. yeah, And the other is just reluctant and it becomes a bit of a, you know, an uneven, unbalanced uh, relationship of sorts where one person feels, you know, not good enough, let down, only good enough for sex.
1: Yeah. You know, it's not something I ever... I mean, it's common in today's era. And again, I think the why is important. Some people accidentally fall in love when they've been hooking up and they end up finding a partner that way. But you're mm-hmm. also exposing yourself to being very much hurt if you aren't really in order with your why. And mm-hmm. I think if you don't have the self-esteem to genuinely treat this as a hookup because then you're exposing yourself to the risk of feeling unfulfilled but I certainly think that we shouldn't be having a moral judgment about it it's all about what you are interested in and whether you have the self-esteem to Mm. do that
2: and that that point about self-esteem and maybe obtaining self-esteem from feeling good enough you know feeling you know sexual objectification is not necessarily always interpreted or experienced as a negative thing you know the term often seems quite um, loaded with negativity, but actually it's a way of feeling good enough. If I am chosen, if I am good enough to hook up with, then that's you know that's a, a nice dose of confidence that I'm going to get. But then what happens if you want more and they don't? Yeah uh, it's an interesting it's an interesting thing, isn't
1: it? Yes. Well, I should let you go. I know you're very, very busy. I so appreciate you having taken the time. Would you like to share any final thoughts? Final Thoughts by Tasha Silverman.
2: Well, something that comes to mind is how physical affection can very quickly become intertwined with sexual intimacy. So something I see a lot is the complete absence of physical touch. Cuddles, kisses, stroking, hand-holding, arms around the waist – because it has started to feel like initiation when it comes to sex.
0: Mm. So quite
2: often people shut down their partners when they reach out in an affectionate way, because they anticipate um, their partners basically asking if they want to have sex with them. And that leads both partners to feel quite lonely. So I'd encourage people to make sure that you are regularly initiating affection and that your partner knows that that loving Touch or sexual touch, as a case may be, does not always lead to sexual intimacy. It doesn't have to become sex, and um, you still want to touch each other, irrespective of whether it becomes sexual.
1: That's a very good point. Thank you. And I think there's value in children growing up seeing this non-sexual physical intimacy demonstrative love between their parents
2: mm, absolutely definitely because you know we're teaching our children what healthy love love looks like and you know I think many of us will want our children to think you know they deserve an affectionate loving partner
1: yes and they should be one too
2: thank absolutely. you is
1: do you have another final thought before we wrap up
2: I'd be conscious of uh, honing in on certain areas of your partner's body because that can quickly lead to making your partner feel objectified. So people have a tendency to go straight for boobs, bums, genitals, rather than making them one part of your partner's whole body. So make sure that you pay attention to your partner as a whole. Obviously, Um, certain parts are going to be more desirable or attractive to certain people that's completely natural and completely normal but don't make your partner feel that that's all you're there for that that's the main event because so so my (laughs)
1: husband isn't just a package
2: exactly exactly
1: (laughs) yes we need to appreciate the whole human being that makes a lot of sense too
2: yeah. And I do see that alongside avoidance of sex sometimes. No one wants to feel reduced to their parts, do they? They want to be uh, they want to feel like they're partners with them and not just, you know, certain body parts.
1: Absolutely.
2: Thank you so much. Okay. Well, you're so welcome.
1: Thank you. And I hope you're willing to come back sometime oh, I love that. and, and thank talk you so about some having me. my pleasure. I, I feel privileged that you are willing oh. to do this.
2: Bitto, bitto. I've been very much enjoying your podcast. Oh,
1: thank you. (laughs) Tales from an old woman.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Oh, no, hardly.
1: Anytime you have something that you think, you know what, I think this would be a good topic to put out there, give me a shout and we'll make it happen. Oh, fantastic. I would love that. Thank you so much, Tasha. Oh, thank you, Julie. Take care of yourself. You too. Thank you for listening. If you enjoy this podcast, please share it with friends, family, even people who might hate it. They can hate listen. I'm fine with that too. And if you have anything you'd like to share with me or any questions, you can email me at jewelsays at gmail.com, J-E-W-E-L-S says at gmail.com. Have a wonderful week.